Hello and welcome to this new Europe chat. My name is Shim Klos, I'm Secretary General of TEPSA. Today we are going to talk about what looks like a technical theme, but it's much more than that, trans-European networks. We're going to try and understand what hides behind this term and why it is relevant today. To do that, I have invited Matthias Rüter, who has had a very rich career in the Commission. He ended in 2019 as Director General for Migration and Home Affairs, but before that he was Director General for Transport and Energy, as well as Transport and Mobility. Hello, Matthias. Hello, James. <clears throat> Can I start right away with uh, a slightly awkward question? Uh, I heard that you were, at the beginning of your career, a mildly Eurosceptic professor of law at a German university. How come that you moved into a very enthusiastic supporter of the EU and one of its top civil servants? What an awkward question, <laughs> but uh, uh, actually it was a British university I came from uh, to, to the Commission and uh, I was a Eurosceptic because I was a strong believer in democracy. And I thought that uh, a democratic uh, way of doing things needed a sovereign, needed a people, and I could not understand how we would have a European people. And then I came to the Commission and I was immediately involved in managing a crisis, which was the Chernobyl crisis. I was actually in the Commission in Luxembourg. Uh, at the time, and uh, I saw what shared sovereignty in certain areas actually brings as an addition to uh, the national sovereignty. And so with that, and with the fact that actually in 1986 when I came, the Jacques Delors had just become president, there was a dynamic in the commission. Uh, I very quickly was converted. I thought I would stay only one year and then go back to university, and then I stayed there to the end of my career. That happens to a lot of people who come to Brussels, including myself. Uh, I said you were retired, but I take it that you are a very active retired man. Well, I have, uh, I, I do a little bit of teaching, but as a major uh, thing that I do is actually, I am still European coordinator for the Trans-European Networks, in a special area, which is European Rail Traffic Management System, ERTMS, or you can ask, uh, translate that much better, Digital Rail. And this is a mandate which is quite an interesting mandate, uh, where you, uh, you have to have the approval of the European Parliament, the Member States, and have to be proposed by the Commission. And uh, it is limited in time. I'm now, uh, I will be European coordinator until the end of 2023. Uh, and then we will see. Okay, that brings us straight to the theme of our discussion today, trans-European networks. What is it? What are we talking about? And why is it relevant today? Well, if I can um, quickly describe a little bit what uh, legally is uh, envisaged at the moment, is uh, we have the trans-European networks in the treaty. We have them in the treaty since, uh, since Maastricht. Um, um, but in reality it is uh, a policy of interconnecting transport, um, um, uh, infrastructure, energy infrastructure and also telecommunications infrastructure. Um, 
just for the anecdote, when the, this was actually negotiated um, in, in, in the Maastricht negotiations, and you, Jim, were quite involved in, in that, the Commission even made a proposal that there was a fourth network uh, to be put into the treaty, which was a, a, a more of an um, intellectual network, which was in reality an apprenticeship network, which was thrown out at the time, uh, but uh, so we only have energy, transport, and uh, telecommunications. But it took an awful long time. Yeah. If you think of uh, uh, the Maastricht Treaty, it took an awful long time to come into the treaty. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, already when the um, European Economic Community Treaty and the, uh, uh, was prepared, there was a report by the Belgian Prime Minister Spark. Uh, on uh, how to structure the treaty, and he insisted very much, together with uh, the other colleague, Wiseman, of that group, that we should have a European infrastructure policy. But right. we didn't get it. We had to wait until the internal market was there. In 1985, yeah. 86. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this was kind of because there was a logic that if you talk internal market, you talk infrastructure. And can you explain a bit what how this developed then, concretely, afterwards? Well, uh, in reality, um, there was this, uh, this discourse on the missing links, uh, saying, okay, we are doing the whole uh, legislation, but uh, if we have the legislation in place and all the goods can actually freely circulate in, inside the uh, internal market, how are we actually going to have them circulate? We need, we need to deal with the missing links. Uh, at the same time, you had a situation where high-speed rail was becoming very popular. And so, in, to a certain extent, these two elements came together in the debate in terms of uh, um, trying to develop a trans-European network policy. I was, at the time, uh, uh, assistant to the Director General uh, for the internal market, and so I already had to deal with trans-European network policy before it actually uh, came into, uh, into the treaty. Now, um, the actual uh, implementation then of the trans-European network policy uh, in, after the Maastricht Treaty was first of all a search for projects. And we had a lot of projects. Some of them made sense. Some of them, let's put it that way, were more political. Mm -hmm. uh, to give you one example, uh, one of the projects, uh, early projects identified was an airport, the Malpensa Airport. Uh, not okay, you can say there's, there's connectivity in an airport, but it was not the type of infrastructure that you would immediately think of uh, uh, in terms of connectivity. There were other things such as the Brenner Base Tunnel or the line between Brussels and Paris and London and Cologne and Amsterdam. Uh, those were the, the big projects which were being discussed uh, at the time and which uh, saw the light then. Um, first of all, in decisions that the European Council took in Essen in, uh, in 94, which uh, basically identified 14 priority projects on the basis of a proposal of a group, the Christofferson Group, which had been constituted by the Commission and also a report that uh, uh, had come out uh, um, uh, of Jacques, Jacques Delors, which was about growth and employment uh, in 1993. So those, all these things came together. 
Um, and then we had to uh, negotiate the legal text. And the legal text was a very difficult negotiation. Why? Because to a certain extent, and you still have it in the treaty, there's a veto right of each member state on which, uh, which part uh, is actually put into the map of the trans-European networks. Right. Uh, and because of that, uh, we had what I call the... Um, we had a combination of anarchy and absolutism. Anarchy, because each member state could actually put everything in there, so we had a kind of spaghetti uh, in terms of trans-European networks. Mm -hmm. And then uh, absolutism, because the heads of state of government had decided 14 projects. By the way, very difficult in the negotiations with the European Parliament as well, who wanted to change the 14 priority projects. Uh, but the member states didn't want to do that, and at the time uh, there was a rather awkward compromise found, uh, uh, I think, with uh, an annex which was created, which actually reflected the Essen conclusions, uh, uh, but which was not fully shared by the Parliament. So, so, so that was the first step. So we got the trans-European networks, we got the idea, we got the infrastructure policy, but in reality it was still not very much developed methodologically. And then came the overall enlargement, uh, and, uh, which was ha happening at the same time, you know, Copenhagen criteria, right. uh, all that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I was actually then at that time director in transport, and I was um, running an exercise with all the candidate countries with the exception of uh, Malta, which only uh, uh, formed part of it uh, at, a, at a later stage, with all the candidate countries of trying to identify the trans-European networks in the candidate countries. Right. And uh, there we were, to a certain extent, perhaps better placed because we said, okay, let's try and develop a methodology. Uh, to a certain extent, it's the typical thing that happens in enlargement negotiations, as long as the countries are candidates, uh, there are more things which are said from Brussels. Uh, once they are members, uh, they obviously want to uh, uh, dominate the poli uh, policies themselves. So to a certain extent, uh, what we tried to do with the candidate countries is we tried to develop a methodology on how to determine the infrastructure of European interest. Uh, and this was the so-called TINA exercise, I'm only talking about transport now, it's the Transport Infrastructure Needs Assessment, which we proposed in 1998, and that then led to uh, a slightly different approach in terms of trans-European networks. Also, if we look at then the, the different legal uh, provisions, I think the big, big change was actually uh, after the Van Miert Group had uh, uh, looked at projects which were relevant for the candidate countries or then the, the, members, uh, the new members of the European Union. The big change then came in uh, 2013 when we actually, first of all, developed financially the Connecting Europe facility and secondly then uh, uh, at the same time uh, ha developed the idea of having a core network with corridors and a comprehensive network. Uh, thanks very much. I think. Uh, I'm sorry, I was a bit long. No, no, no. Yeah. But I, I think I think it's important. I take from what you said. Uh, first observation is that here we are talking about infrastructure which is deemed 
to be very close to national sovereignty. So naturally, the member countries want to control it. Secondly, uh, from what you say, it is very obvious that, as often happens in the EU, you have an idea, you start working, but you start working by trial and error. And we adapt as we go along. I think that's a very important lesson. Uh, now, let me move on. You mentioned financing. Uh, uh, what is today the status of the Trans-European Network? And particularly, can you say something about the financing, which I suppose, as often happens in the EU, is slightly complicated? Uh, yes, and uh, I will not uh, bore you and, and, and uh, uh, all the listeners and auditors uh, with, uh, uh, with all the details on that. Um, in a nutshell, first of all, we have a specific dedicated instrument to finance trans-European networks. This used to be uh, uh, the 10T financial regulation uh, and has since 2013, I mentioned it, uh, become the Connecting Europe facility. Um, and uh, I'm relatively proud of, uh, of that because if I was involved in the financial negotiations on that uh, in, in different functions uh, uh, repeatedly. And uh, we moved to a certain extent from something like um, 300 million available for projects over, over two years or three years to 26 billion uh, in the first Connecting Europe facility and also in the second, this is on transport. And then uh, we have something like uh, 5 billion on energy and 2 billion on telecommunications. Um, so there's quite a steep increase um, uh, in terms of finance. And I think the way we managed to convince the member states and especially the finance ministers of the member states to give us that much more money was that uh, we actually set up um, an agency to manage the funds, uh, which uh, was the Tenti agency. It's now the uh, Climate and Infrastructure uh, uh, Senior Agency, uh, where there's a very professional management of funds. Um, why, at the time, did I push for setting up of this agency? Because in reality, when the Commission was managing money, you always had the desk officer who had the choice between writing the briefing for the commissioner or actually looking at the funds. And the funds were always pushed back, which meant that to a certain extent there was no professional managerial treatment of the management of funds. And, and this agency does that now. So that's one part. But in reality, the much bigger part is that the trans-European networks actually provide the blueprint for spending of money, cohesion money, regional funds, EIB, EU Invest, and now also the Recovery and Resilience Facility. So to a certain extent, roughly speaking, I would say that with grants, with loans, looking at the EIB, everything mm. together, we spend something like 50 billion a year now for the Trans-European Networks. About 50 billion a year, which is massive, of massive, course. But, uh, but a lot of it loans, obviously. Yes, yeah. So, th so that's a little bit of finance. We use a special facility, but we also use we have the, the money which we have in structural funds, funds cohesion yes, money, yeah. the EIB, and all of that. Then there's also yeah. one as aspect which I didn't mention at all because, uh, and we'll come to that a little bit later, hopefully. Um, there's uh, trans-European networks are also an innovation driver. 
and uh, because of that, uh, there's also research money involved. So, so it's quite difficult to identify over a year what is actually trans-European network money. So I, I've just given you a ballpark figure with the 50 billion. Yeah, but I think it's, it's massive. Uh, that's what's important, and it mobilizes many of the funds, including, as you mentioned, the uh, recently adopted uh, resilience uh, and recovery and uh, resilience, recovery where, where we have something like uh, I think 90 billion of that is actually earmarked for transport, and I think uh, just around 50 billion for rail. So, so quite quite a lot. Quite a lot. Uh, Matthias, maybe it's time now we should maybe move to to one or the other concrete achievements and. Uh, uh, since you mentioned enlargement, and it's true, this was a very important part of accession, getting in new countries. Uh, maybe you can say a word about uh, the interconnections with the Baltic states, because uh, uh, both it's important and it's also very topical against the background of what's happening today in the, in the east, on our eastern borders. Well, uh, in as much as the Baltic states are concerned, I was involved uh, as a director in, in, in coordinating the enlargement negotiations uh, uh, in 2002 and 2004. Uh, um, and I realized very quickly that uh, we needed to make sure that uh, there were interconnections. Uh, and these interconnections uh, became even more obvious uh, when we had what I then witnessed as Director General for Energy, the Ukrainian-Russian gas crisis, 2006 till 2009. Always interruptions uh, and, and so on and so forth. And um, there was a d debate um, uh, launched by uh, the prime ministers of the three Baltic states saying that uh, the Baltic states are an energy island and we need to try and overcome this. And uh, so the then president of the commission uh, set up uh, with the, these prime ministers the so-called uh, um, high-level group on uh, Baltic energy market interconnection, BMIP, uh, which I had the honor to chair. And uh, in reality, we worked very quickly on making sure that uh, alternative supply routes were actually uh, identified and finance was found. Um, so I still remember that we had uh, the electricity interconnection between Lithuania uh, and, and Sweden. We had gas uh, connections between Finland uh, and uh, Estonia. We then also had uh, a little bit later a, a connection between Lithuania and Poland. Um, and this whole report, which uh, ended up in a memorandum of understanding, I think 2007, if my memory is correct, um, uh, identified an overall approach to making sure that the Baltic countries were actually part of the European Union in terms of the energy market. There's one element which was quite important, which is quite important also now in the context of the, 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 the Russian war of aggression against the Ukraine. The Baltic states were all linked into the uh, old Soviet and then uh, Russian electricity grid, which had a different frequency. And uh, so we developed, uh, and this takes quite a long time, uh, all the, the elements in terms of uh, actually switching over to the, to the European grid and the European fre frequencies. And I believe that uh, when there was now urgency also to make sure that the Ukraine 
uh, was connected to the European grid. Uh, a lot of lessons learned from, from that exercise were actually taken, taken, uh, taken over there. Well, fascinating. I, 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 I think this is, it shows how relevant the things we are doing are in modern times, including in geopolitics. But we'll come back to that later, maybe. No, it's uh, uh, one of the prime ministers at some stage who said he was actually a Eurosceptic turned to me when we had this first memorandum of understanding and said, this is like Easter and Christmas at the same time. <laughs> uh, since we, we talked about one project in the north, let's, there is something which I just wanted to ask you. It's, it's out of, of personal interest. There has been talk about links between the Iberian Peninsula and France uh, in terms of uh, electricity, but also gas. And uh, there's, recently I read there are still problems there. Somehow there's a disagreement uh, between uh, France and the others uh, to such an extent that I heard that the Spaniards are now talking to the Germans about possibly creating a link via Italy, which reminds me, if I may say so, of the 16th century, Philip II and all of that, who at the time was at war with France and who uh, uh, tried to establish links between Spain and the Dutch Netherlands via Italy. Uh, do you know anything about this? What is well, going on there? Uh, Jim, to be very frank with you, uh, uh, I obviously uh, follow the press and uh, uh, it's now some... 10, 12 years ago since I was Director General for Energy. But at that time already we were grappling with the issue of uh, making sure that uh, Spain and, uh, and, and Portugal uh, did not, uh, uh, were not energy islands uh, in that sense in, in relationship to the, to the European market. And uh, the only way to connect this uh, is via the Pyrenees uh, uh, between France uh, and, and Spain. And um, uh, at that time, both gas and electricity uh, were being discussed. And to a certain extent, uh, I was actually quite lucky in terms of uh, convincing Mario Monti to do a job which, to a certain extent, I'm now doing now for transport, to become an EU energy coordinator, which is foreseen in the guidelines, uh, uh, Trans-European Network guidelines, and he actually was quite instrumental in brokering a deal uh, in terms of electricity interconnections. Um, and the element, and the, the important element of brokering the deal was because there was a lot of also uh, uh, resistance because of ecological uh, concerns and so, is, is actually to, to, to go underground. Uh, with the electricity connection and, funny enough, also to use the trans-European networks for transport because part of the electricity line actually goes through a tunnel uh, where also trains go through. Um, and that actually became, um, there's quite a lot of European money mo mobilized for that. And so the, the electricity interconnection, um, which is basically between Figueras in, in Spain and uh, Perpignan in, in France, uh, I think was... Uh, inaugurated something um, some five, six years ago. Um, 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 there was at the same time also discussion about gas. Um, and uh, there are some gas pipeline interconnections, but they have very low volume. And so to a certain extent, now the discussion is, uh, is about uh, creating a, a third uh, gas pipeline. Uh, but the, let, 
let me put it that way, the overall environment has become a different one. First of all, uh, gas is now only treated as transition, te uh, transition technology because right. everybody says we, because of climate change, the Green Deal, we have to move away from gas. Uh, although we're at the moment only discussing gas. Uh, the second thing is, is obviously that uh, there are issues in terms of saying, okay, well, the, the present pipelines are not fully used. That's, that's what I hear uh, at the moment as well. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, we have an overall objective for electricity of having something like 15% of the national needs uh, being actually covered through interconnections between, uh, between member states. We haven't got a formal figure for gas, uh, but to a certain extent we should think along those lines. And since gas is still seen as a transition technology, uh, perhaps even having an EU coordinator now again would be something. But I believe that at the moment this is done already at the highest level between the different heads of state and government, and I hope that we'll, we'll come to a positive conclusion, as we very often do. Probably mobilizing European money uh, in order to make sure that uh, uh, perhaps the considerations in terms of the economics of, uh, of the connections are, uh, are not taken that seriously. Okay, well, thanks. Let's hope for the best, as always, in those cases. We, we've now been talking about transport, energy, and they are hugely important, of course. There's also telecommunications and space. And in that context, maybe could you say a word about this and about Galileo? Well, um, if I can quickly say something about telecommunications. Telecommunications, to a certain extent, is the third element in, in terms of uh, trans-European networks. And even now, we tend to, to speak more about digital uh, rather than telecommunications as such. But if you uh, look at it, uh, this is basically uh, a field where private operators uh, earn a lot of money and uh, there's not a lot of need in terms of actually the interest uh, of, of the public yeah. side intervening in terms of the infrastructure. But there are very good uh, projects which have been launched such as for instance uh, free Wi-Fi in, in cities and villages, that type of thing which have been financed uh, uh, also on the, on, on the 10 um, telecommunications side. Um, then there are also the ideas such as um, experimental corridors, 5G corridors, that type of thing. But uh, in as much as space is concerned, um, now we have an article on space in the treaty, a little bit awkwardly placed in the, in the research chapter, but, uh, uh, but again, this, this article only came into the treaty, um, if my memory is correct, with the Lisbon uh, uh, Treaty. Uh, but already in the 90s, uh, we had identified one thing which would be very important for transport management, and that was uh, a European equivalent to GPS. And when I became director in 1998 uh, uh, in, uh, in, in the Transport DG, I had my then commissioner, Neil Kinnock, say to me, okay, these guys are working on something, I'm not quite sure what it is, they call it GNSS, Global Navigation Satellite System. You have a look at it, and you either kill it or make something really good out of it. And then I spent about a year 
on that, uh, trying to understand a little bit what it was about, negotiating also and discussing with Americans, also with Russians at the time. Uh, and uh, in the end, um, I went back to Kinnock and said, look here, we have a great interest in developing our own European satellite navigation system, uh, which would be uh, uh, in parallel to GPS. Uh, and uh, for two reasons. One, economic reasons, uh, because to a certain extent, all the companies who had the inside knowledge of how the system was working, uh, you know, the applications in, in particular was very important. And the, uh, but the second one uh, was also what we now call strategic autonomy. Uh, we already at that time had uh, episodes where uh, the GPS signal was not available, uh, uh, and so to a certain extent, we, uh, uh, I said to the commissioner, we need to uh, propose this. And then I spent my Christmas writing together with uh, two colleagues uh, a communication on Galileo, which went through the commission one week before the commission in 1999 uh, resigned. Uh, I remember. You, you, uh, and and, uh, and this is where, for the first time, the name Galileo actually was put on this GNSS. Um, German presidency very quickly afterwards in June, July uh, endorsed it. And so we then had the first kickoff in terms of uh, actually developing, financed through trans-European networks because it was a traffic management system. Now it's no longer part of the trans-European networks, now it's part of the space policy. It's up and running, there are 24 satellites. If you use your telephone to determine where you are, I'm quite sure you actually are receiving a Galileo signal. Most people don't know that. I don't know how many billions of Galileo chips are now in, in, in different phones because to a certain extent, and that was my big problem at the time as well, it's free, the signal, uh, as the GPS is free. And then I had a lot of finance ministers at the time telling us, yeah, but you have to make a public-private partnership out of it. But uh, in a, my, my rather uh, curious example is uh, um, it would be as if I were trying to sell a drink called Pepsi-Cola, and I'd say, okay, this is great. I will, I'll sell this because this is great. And then somebody tells you, yeah, but there's another drink called Coca-Cola, and it's for free. Uh, and, and because of that, I think uh, we have to realize it is a public infrastructure. And it's actually one, these satellites are actually in the ownership of the European Union. You may remember from the Brexit negotiations. Yeah? Let me turn maybe now to, uh, I have another question, which is more general. We talk about geopolitics. It's about the uh, European gateway. What is the link to this? Well, uh, let me put it that way. We had actually uh, already in the, uh, in the 90s uh, an attempt to develop uh, on the European Union level a kind of economic diplomacy uh, using infrastructure, using uh, infrastructure connections uh, and uh, uh, we did uh, something, we had projects called the Silk Road. Uh, we had uh, uh, a lot of other uh, projects which, which were going on. Uh, but then 
probably also because of the financial and, and the economic crisis, we became more inward-looking. Right. And uh, we had, for instance, defined the Helsinki or Crete corridors, which went way beyond the European Union. So there was a, a, quite a, uh, in the 90s, quite an outward-looking approach in terms of infrastructure policy. And I think we needed to, the wake-up call of the Chinese initiative, um, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, to see that we have um, something to offer to the world. And so the Global Gateway uh, uh, proposal, which is actually building on a number of rather diverse uh, existing um, connectivity um, exercise, uh, promises uh, in the next, uh, between 2021 and 2027, to mobilize up to 300 billion euros in loans, but also in grants, pooling money from different pots again. Um, there's not a lot of fresh money, unfortunately, there. Uh, but uh, offering a very different partnership in terms of infrastructure to uh, countries, and especially in Africa, also in Asia, but especially in Africa. Um, and this has just taken off. So the jury is out. It was uh, proposed, I think, uh, in December last year. Um, endorsed by, by the Council, but uh, there will be a lot of different diverse projects, but they have a more global uh, um, global uh, reach and a global visibility than, than the other, other projects had. There is one question which uh, I'm uh, now listening to you. I mean, on the one hand, the, this idea uh, which the Chinese appropriate was actually first the European idea, but uh, the gateway, it's a competition to what the Chinese do. Is it possible also that it links into parts of what the Chinese want to do or not? Global gateway, in reality, if you look at the different headlines, you have transport, you have telecommunications, you have energy, but you also have health and you have education uh, in there. And um, um, one of the elements, it could link into the chi Chinese projects, but it could only link into them if all ways of dealing with things uh, is actually adhered to. And one of the selling points is transparency, public procurement in a different way. So there's a whole value culture connected uh, with infrastructure as well. Um, so I would not exclude that uh, in, in, in certain cases it's possible, but uh, um, I think one has to look very closely uh, uh, there's also um, uh, the American initiative, which is Build Back Better, uh, which is a similar uh, initiative. I think there probably are more, more synergies, uh, synergies uh, possible. Uh, Matthias, I think we unfortunately have to come to the end of our discussion. I would like to, at the end, uh, uh, ask you to reflect a bit on um, the trans-European networks against the back ground of the uh, the war of the Russians against Ukraine. I mean, what, what, how, how relevant are the trans-European networks in this context? Um, they are very relevant, Jim, and uh, um, let me start off by saying I think we have belittled the role of infrastructure uh, a little bit uh, in the past, especially rail. Uh, saying, okay, rail in the 19th century was seen uh, uh, as a military asset. Uh, 
suddenly we realize the strategic importance of railways and interconnections. And by the way, the Commission and the uh, uh, Council and Parliament have already recognized that when they were adopting the Connecting Europe facility, because there's a new element in the Connecting Europe facility which was adopted uh, in 2018, if my memory, or 19, if my memory is correct, um, that's military mobility, or at least dual use of infrastructure also for, for military purposes. That was already anticipated uh, before the war of aggression started. Second point is that uh, the, uh, there's now a proposal to extend the trans-European networks to the Ukraine and, uh, uh, and Moldova, uh, and at the same time uh, also a debate in terms of the future gauge of railways, because um, Ukraine has the Russian railway gauge, which is larger than the, the, the standard European one. By the way, um, in the Baltic countries, we have a similar phenomenon. We still have uh, the Russian gauge, but we are now building Rail Baltica with the European gauge. Uh, uh, so the idea would be that at least new trans-European network uh, uh, parts of the infrastructure actually adhere to the, to the European gauge. Uh, so, so, so that's another element. And I think we have seen the importance of railways in terms of transporting refugees and transporting uh, goods from the Ukraine, uh, but also transporting military material to the Ukraine. Uh, and this is, gives an overall very different and additional dimension to the trans-European networks. Matthias, thank you very much for what I think was a fascinating expose of uh, one of the really important issues. Uh, this brings us to the end of uh, our Europe chat on trans-European networks. I hope you found it interesting. I hope you liked the link between technicality and geostrategic issues and more generally the economy, society and everything. So uh, thank you very much for watching. Don't hesitate if you have comments to send them to us. And I already invite you to our next Europe chat, which will come soon. Thank you very much. This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The European Commission's support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors, and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.